A healthier population is the way to control the astronomical rise in the cost of health care, right? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Joyce. Dr. Joyce is a senior economist with the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Dr. Joyce's recent work has been on the impact of Medicare Part D, drug benefit design, smoking cessation, and the cost of disease. Welcome, Dr. Joyce. It's great to have you joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. My pleasure, Bill. Alice Rivlin and Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institute wrote in the Washington Post, for all their impressive qualities, this year's presidential candidates are woefully short on fiscal prudence. Worse, no candidate is facing the fiscal time bomb of health care entitlements. Dr. Joyce, you get a call, not necessarily at 3 a.m., from the next president of the United States. Tell me something I don't already know that needs to be done to fix the health care problem now. I think, though, you raise an interesting question about addressing the issues of today and what's typically being talked about in the campaign about covering the uninsured or making drugs maybe a little more affordable to folks versus the much larger sort of macro long-term issues of the solvency of Medicare and Medicaid, and you could even spill over into Social Security. We have huge demographic changes, huge growth in, in spending of medical care, and how are we going to afford that in the future? To be honest, the, the first questions that the politicians are addressing are the easy ones. They're how do we tweak a system that may not be perfect, but how do we tweak it to make it a little better? The bigger questions that no politician really wants to address are these unfunded liabilities that we basically are on the hook for trillions of dollars of spending in the future for Medicare and Medicaid, and again, to some degree, Social Security as well. How you address those, there's no easy answer voters would like to hear. We can raise the age at which people get those benefits. We can tax them more, or we can make them pay a lot more of their share for Medicare and Medicaid. And that's very frustrating for people who have paid into these systems for a lot of years through taxes. And then when it comes to recoup the benefits of it, they're paying a much higher fraction. So there are no easy answers, but those are big, big questions that I really think an administration and a forward-looking one would address. It's not going to happen during a campaign. Is the RAND Corporation putting together any kind of formal recommendations should somebody come to them and say, we need a plan? The RAND Corporation has come up with different sets of models to try and forecast what we think are the implications of different types of policies. Uh, there's a, a compare project here that's been funded by a, a wide variety of, of sources to do that. So that we're more than willing to try and help any candidate or any presidential, uh, whoever wins the presidential election, on trying to sort through what do we think the implications are of different types of policies. Having said that, the downside is, is a lot of policies that sort of improve people's health and encourage innovation and technology are not cheap. And, and even if they're, they're cost-saving in a year or two, by extending people's life, they live longer. And so they do cost the government more. So there, is, there are these clinical advances and technological advances that can make people live longer, but they may not save us money. And so these are not easy questions to address. One of the things that's clearly a fact is that an individual costs the healthcare system more in the last six months of their life than I think any other time in their life. Could this country tolerate a policy that says, when you've got that last six months to go, we're going to provide hospice care and death with dignity? And has Rand Corporation as a think tank thought about the issue of euthanasia? The Netherlands has a euthanasia law that allows it under certain circumstances. I mean, is this really something that we should face, Dr. Kaborkian? 
There are plenty of researchers, both at RAND and outside of RAND, who have looked at that question. And I, there's no doubt we can do a better job at end-of-life care and more humane care in trying to keep people alive where, where the probability of, of their survival and a quality of life is, is quite low. But having said that, when you look at the statistics, if you look at what fraction of health care costs are spent in people's last year of life or last six months, it's fairly high. It's about 25% or a little more of, of people's lifetime spending. But it hasn't changed over time. So that whatever we're doing in those last six months or a year is really what is not driving the growth in healthcare spending that we've observed over the last several decades. Would that make that cost-effective care then? I think it would be more cost-effective in certain situations. But you have to remember when you come into the hospital, they don't know this bill's going to die in this in this case. Ah, there's so, the rub. Right. <laughs> so doctors have to make decisions, the best clinical decisions about what can we do to help this patient. That's the oath they take. And they don't know. If they knew with certainty that this was futile, then they probably wouldn't go forth. But they really have to make that effort. And if we knew with, with any sort of precision this was a lost cause, this was not a lost cause, then it's an easier decision. But coming in, they don't know that, and so they have to devote the best resources and the best uh, care to each individual patient that comes in. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm having a lively chat with Dr. Jeffrey Joyce, Senior Economist with the RAND Corporation. We're discussing reining in healthcare costs. Um, we don't know who's going to go which way in those last months or that on that particular admission. Should the patient be given more right, more counseling to say enough is enough? Should we allow euthanasia in this country from an economic standpoint, not moral, not ethical, but economically? Would that help? I think a frank national discussion about it, I think, is really welcome. I think you're right. Other countries do it better than we do. You can't, I think there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that you can't make these decisions at the point when the person's very ill at the hospital. Families can't do it. Individual patients can't do it. So these advanced directives where people say, I don't want all these unnatural uh, efforts and, and machinery to keep me alive. If you can get people at age 40, 50, and 60 to say, these are the decisions I want to make about my health care at the end of life, I think that's a real good step in the right direction. But you don't want to wait until your father or my father is in the, is in the hospital critically ill. It's very difficult for a family to say, don't do everything you can to keep him or her alive. As illnesses get more complicated as new technologies result in new medications, new treatments. I have read on insurance companies, this had to do with oncology drugs, oncology medications, where an insurance company has not reimbursed an oncologist, and these were in clinical studies at University of California, San Francisco, and I believe at Duke, where they said that because this medication is not FDA approved for that particular cancer, we will not pay for it. Is that economically feasible? As an economist, as somebody with Rand Corporation involved with making policy recommendations, how does that sit with you? Again, I, can, I, I, sympathize, I sympathize with both sides on this equation. I understand the government's decision to say we're not going to pay for, in this case, a very expensive drug where we don't have good evidence, real good clinical evidence, that it's effective. Conversely, from a doctor's perspective who's tried other 
in short treatments with a patient, let's say a cancer patient, that are not effective and really thinks this drug, which has been used, let's say, to treat non-lymphoma Hodgkin's disease, can maybe be effective for another type of cancer, it's worth a try. And you understand the doctors trying to act in the best interest of their patients wanting to do that, but you can also worry about the insurers and the government saying, there's no evidence it works on that type of cancer, and until we do a clinical trial or until there's enough, quote-unquote, off-label evidence, then we're not going to we're not going to reimburse for that drug. So again, it's not an easy answer, um, and I understand the decisions being made on both sides. But I I don't think it's fair to say these terrible insurance companies or the terrible government is not willing to to reimburse for expensive treatments where we don't have good clinical evidence that they're effective for a broad scope of patients. How would you handle the situation if it was your mother or your child who is being denied the medication? I'd be terribly upset. You're absolutely right. And I think if you had the resources, you say, it is my mother's life, for example, I may be willing to have to pay out of pocket because what's worth more to me than my mother's life, for example. And I might be willing to try that experimental treatment and maybe try and uh, often the pharmaceutical manufacturers that make these drugs do have programs for people who can't afford uh, these experimental uses because it's in the interest of the manufacturers to have a doctors trying these drugs in different arenas to see how effective they are for, di- for treating different types of conditions that have not been approved yet. But again, I can understand the frustration, but from a, from a payer's perspective and a society's perspective, do we want to pay for anything even without good clinical evidence that it's worthwhile? How will we get sometimes the good clinical evidence if we don't allow these things to be tried? Again, it's expensive for the manufacturers, but if they really think this drug has much broader uh, use than what's currently being approved by the FDA, they have to do a clinical trial to show it's effective, for example, for this particular type of cancer. And again, the manufacturers say they're expensive and time-consuming to run these trials. And so, again, we, we have this sort of implicit way where physicians have off, used these drugs off-label, um, and doctors can do that legally. But again, the reimbursement issue becomes uh, a concern for patients when these off-label uses are not covered. One thing we haven't touched on, and I don't hear anybody talking about it politically either, is waste in the system. Is there enough waste that we could make a significant dent in the health care costs? Henry Waxman's on the job again, actually, with Danny Davis from Illinois, which is where I'm from. So, But they wrote a letter to President Bush that more than 200,000 federal retirees are enrolled in two government-sponsored prescription drug programs, and the duplicate coverage may cost more than $200 million annually. And they throw out about another you know, $100 million here or there. And I know when you're talking trillions, it's, what's a couple of hundred million? But you know, here's just one example. As an economist, do you think there's enough waste in the system that we could make some kind of a reasonable dent? Absolutely. And I think that's the whole movement towards cost-effective care. Do we just randomly cover any drug or medical device or new technology regardless of its cost? Do we, or should we weigh how effective it is in, in relation to how much it costs? And so I think that's one way to try and reduce waste. Then you can look at single-payer systems like in Canada and Britain where there are administrative costs. So the, the bookkeeping and the paperwork of healthcare is maybe half of what it is in the United States. We do have a very fragmented healthcare system that it, it's unique to the United States. It's evolved over time, and it's because it's fragmented and disjointed. I think the, there are inefficiencies inherent in it, both administratively and clinical. Passing one patient on to another, there's less continuity of care from doctor to doctor. So I, I think there's clearly a scope for improving efficiency, and I think the whole idea of moving towards cost-effective care is to try and say, let's just not look at things that improve people's health clinically. Let's make good economic and clinical decisions jointly. You talked about fragmented care. New buzzword is 
the medical home. Uh, have you had a chance to look at that from an economic model to see if that makes sense? Um, well, I think the, people didn't like this, but the whole idea of a gatekeeper, when managed care came in in the 80s and 90s to say, you're going to have a central primary care doctor who's going to coordinate your care. There was a real backlash among patients and consumers against having to see their primary care doctor and not being able to go directly to a specialist. I think people weren't used to seeing specialists and didn't like the rigidity of managed care. Uh, But I think that whole aim was to say we want some central person, some doctor who's responsible for your care, and they help, they're in charge when the cardiologist then looks at you and refers back to you, etc. I think the aim was to try and improve continuity, but again, we've had some problems with managed care. I'd like to thank Dr. Jeffrey Joyce, who's been my guest, and we've been trying to find a rational approach to controlling the cost of health. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to enjoy our on-demand program library. Visit us at ReachMD.com and register with promotion code RADIO to receive six months of free streaming audio for your home or office. If you have comments or questions, call us at ReachMD XM 157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.